Well, it's always fun going after lunch and after your mentor for uh, 15 years, who basically everything you know has been passed down from him, so he's already gone over it, and uh, then, uh, then you try and put it out again. But uh, repetition is good, and so we'll head that way. Scott's going to read a couple of verses for me as we kind of set our minds to what we're thinking about. And uh, the last verse he's going to read is a pretty long one, but Scott, will you read those for me? The, yeah. let, me let me first just tell everybody what they are so they can write them down. Ezekiel 22.30, Isaiah 6.8, Second Chronicles 16.9a, in Luke 14.25-33. So Ezekiel 22:30, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Isaiah 6:8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Second Chronicles. Um, 16.9a For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Luke 14.25-33 through 33. Now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. For what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one uh, coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You know, guys, it seems to me that God is always looking for people whose hearts are loyal to him. People, men, women, children, who everything they are and everything they want is Christ. Psalm 73.25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none that I desire, or that I desire on earth besides you. We've talked a little bit about the church's failures. And at the end of Jerry's talk, he talked about what our responsibilities are. I would say to you that the church's failures are our failures. And I'm not standing up here saying that you guys have failed, because I'm one of you guys. We have failed. I've failed in my role as a child of God. I failed in my role as a husband, and I failed in my role as a father, as a friend, as a colleague, in whatever other roles that I had. 
And I think that's where it begins with repentance. So let me just pray for us. I don't even know if we've prayed today together, but let me pray for us. Father, we come here today and we freely admit, Lord, that we have not met the standards that you have for us. We don't know you the way that we ought. We don't desire you the way that we ought. And we certainly don't represent you to others the way that we should. Father, I am the chief sinner in this. And Father, I pray for myself and for these men. I pray that you would just forgive us. And that as we do turn, Lord, in repentance, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, that you would reveal your word to us, that we would be changed, and that we would be men after your own heart. Father, I beg that you would speak through me through your Holy Spirit, that each man in this audience would hear through your Holy Spirit, that we would be changed today, and that we would pass these things along to our family and our colleagues. To your glory, Lord, I just beg that you would have mercy on us, have compassion on us. And more than anything, Lord, I just beg that you would come back soon, redeem your people to yourself. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to talk to you today about is being a man of God. And I'm a guy just like you guys. I'm trying to figure it out also. I'm trying to piece things together that I see in the Word. And I have a lot of the same similarities as you guys. Most of you are husbands. Most of you are dads. I don't see a ton of examples in Scripture of what that looks like. You know, you see Christ as the ultimate example, but we can't look to him necessarily for that. You see Paul, who is an awesome example in Scripture, but again, as far as I know, not married and with kids. And so where do we look to, and how are we piecing it together um, as to what we're supposed to look like as men of God. And, you know, you've heard a lot today about purpose. And again, some of this is going to be a repetition. And I think that's good in a sense. We all learn, obviously, from repetition. But I think we have to hunker down on purpose if we're going to understand what it looks like to be a man of God, what God calls us to. So in my discussion today, I want to answer three questions. The first one. What is our purpose? And we've asked that question, and it's been answered a multitude of ways so far. But what is our purpose? Why did Jesus Christ, why did the Father even want to send his Son for the likes of us to die on the cross, to redeem us to himself? For what? For what purpose? Number two, are we fulfilling that purpose? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I look in the Bible and I see a whole lot more examples that are negative of people interacting with God 
in failing in that interaction rather than people interacting with God and being pleasing to him in that interaction. And I don't know about you, but I look around in the mirror and I look around and again I see a whole lot more examples of failure than I do success. So I don't think that we are fulfilling this purpose that God has for us. And that leads to the third question. How can we get back on track? How can we get back to walking down the path that Christ has for us to his pleasure and hopefully carry along with us some other people to spend an eternity with us in heaven? So, let's talk about purpose. And I'm going to talk about very broad purpose and then kind of narrow it down. Four different categories of purpose. The first one, the purpose for all of mankind is bringing glory to God. Whether it is a believer or an unbeliever, God made all to bring glory to him. Romans 11.36 talks about this, that of, through, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. So whether it was Pharaoh or whether it was Moses, both bring glory to God. Now, taking it to the second point, all believers are supposed to actively participate in bringing glory to God. Right? So, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we all, in this room, we're supposed to actively participate in the plan of God to his glory. Narrowing it down even further. The third aspect. Most of us in this room have common roles. We have a purpose within those roles. We are children, all of us. So we have a role towards our parents. We are husbands, most of us. We're dads, most of us. We are colleagues and friends of others, all of us. So we have certain roles that we share the same calling with each other. If you're a dad, you have the same calling as other dads. And then narrowing it down to the fourth point, even more than that, and this is the one that that contains the most uniqueness or the most variation, but what are you called to individually? Maybe some people are called to be missionaries over in Africa. Maybe some people are called to, you know in a certain vocation, to be a janitor or to be a coach? What kind of gifts are you called to be a pastor? So on and so forth. So there's a lot of variety. What are you called to be within that body to build up the body to the fullness of Christ? Now, I'm going to talk mostly about the second and third of these callings. Actively participating and bringing glory to God And then how we do that within our common roles of being dads, husbands, colleagues, and friends of others. So you could maybe describe those two, number two and number three, in a couple different ways. You could say that our goal or our calling is to love God and love others, right? And we've We've talked about that a little bit. And maybe, maybe in as I describe these things, there's a vertical component and there's a horizontal component. So 
love God and love others. Or be a disciple, make disciples. Or know God, make him known. And those, those are great descriptions. Those are true descriptions of what our calling is. But I want to even bring it down more, and I want to try and make this talk really applicable. What can I put my hands around, and what can I put into place in my life so that I'm fulfilling those callings? So, what I'm going to describe the vertical calling as is something called no, be, do. And some of you guys have heard that before, and I've stolen it from someone else. It's been passed down to me, but I'm going to describe that. I'm going to talk about that. So, no, be, do. And then the horizontal calling, E squared. And Andy, Andy introduced that topic um, to some of you. Many of you know that very intimately, but evangelism and edification. So, no, be, do has to do with our interaction with God. E squared has to do with our interaction with man. And I'm trying, I'm trying to package this stuff together so we can get our arms around it and so we can apply it in our lives. So, no, be, do. And I gave you a little triangle there in your, uh, in your booklet. Knowing has to do with the organ of the mind. Being has to do with the organ of the heart or maybe the soul. And doing has to do with our members, what gets worked out in our body. You've got to know what God wants of you. That has to soak in. It has to, it has to move from your head into your heart, become a part of you. And as that happens, it gets worked out in your being. Let me give you an example. So I, uh, I realized that I had an anger problem with... Um, when our third daughter came along. First daughter, Breeze. Second daughter, she's got a spirit. And uh, you guys probably all have kids like this, and she's a great kid, but we just butted heads quite a bit. And that was okay, because I only had two children. Very quickly, it tipped me over the edge when we had our third daughter, that all of a sudden, I just didn't have the energy or the capacity to manage that second daughter anymore and I found myself getting more and more mad losing my temper yelling spanking out of anger rather than training and obviously I knew what the Bible said that we're not supposed to be angry in sin and this went on for a little while and as I was praying about it as I was looking up verses that talked about anger it finally struck me that, so Matthew 5 talks about how anger can be synonymous with murder. So, you've heard that it said that if you kill someone or you murder someone, that you'll be in danger of the judgment. And then Jesus says, but I say to you that if you're angry, angry with your brother without a cause, you shall be in danger of the judgment. Not the same, but synonymous. So I, I, I realized in the depths of my soul, that my anger could physically kill my daughter. And then I saw in James chapter 1 that Jesus says, let every man be swift, or the author of James says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
And I saw again that my anger, it wasn't having the effect I wanted. In fact, it could spiritually kill my daughter. So my anger could physically kill her and spiritually kill her. And all of a sudden, it was like a light went on in my heart. And that head knowledge had seeped down into my heart and become soul knowledge. And it transformed me. And I had a different outlook on my kids from that point forward. And so that's kind of what I mean by this no be and do aspect. And there are a few verses. There are a lot of verses that you could use to describe this. Um, Romans 12, 2 talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the knowing has to do with the renewing of our mind. And then the being is the transformational process. And the doing is putting those things into practice. Applying them in our lives. And to the degree we do... To the degree that we're obedient, John 14, 21 says that Jesus will reveal himself more to us. He who has my commandments and keeps them is known by my Father, and and I will manifest myself to him. So, know, be, do. And again, I think another verse that describes that, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. And I think I put this in your... In your book. But, so Paul is writing, and he's writing to those in uh, Colossae, and he's basically saying, this is what I pray for you. And he says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, so that you might, so he says, I pray that you'll know his will. And then he seems to say, that there's a deeper sense of knowing. He says, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I think he's talking about being, that it will seep from the head down into the heart. And he isn't just saying that he wants you to know so that you're smarter, but he wants you to know so that you will be transformed and so that you will do the will of God, so that you apply the knowledge that you have. And he says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. And then you see how it comes back around again in increasing in the knowledge of God. He closes that loop again. So I guess my question for you is, are you loving God in this way? Are you being a disciple in this way? Are you investing your life in that process of knowing God through his word, being transformed by this renewing of your mind, doing the will of God, and doing it over and over and over again, like an enzymatic reaction that's taking place in your soul, converting and transforming you. Does that make sense? Does anybody have questions on that? I have a question in, in terms of application. It sounds like you know a big part of what you're having us do is, is studying, knowing, internalizing it, and applying it in our lives. Like, yeah. You brought up the example with your daughter. What is what, what was your application? I mean, you recognized, right? But how did you play it out in real time in terms of managing your, your daughter? With, you know, that kind of stretched you at a level that really tested you. 
can you share with us things you put in place as to how to? <laughs> that's that's the application, yeah. right? Yeah, I think you know until that light went on, I failed miserably. Like I tried, I tried not to get angry, but it was like I went from zero to sixty in a heartbeat. And once God revealed that I was destroying her through my anger, that just broke me. I mean, it broke me. And I, in in a mystical, only the way that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doing it in me can do, I can't do it myself, it changed me so that I didn't want to be angry. And so for some reason, it wasn't I went from zero to 60, but... It was like I went from zero to ten, and then to fifteen, and I could I could stop it before it got to sixty. No, no, no! I still spank for sure. Yeah, absolutely, I still spank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The American Academy of Pediatrics does not recommend spanking, but I do. Yeah, for the records, they recommend. Same-sex marriage, and I don't. Um, yeah, so, so the change in the law, yeah. how you approach Yeah, I mean, you can know, and you can do. <coughs> I mean, you can go directly over horizontally, but I was just having a lot of failure in that, and until God made it a part of me, did I start to have more success. Yeah. <coughs> Let me describe this from a different perspective a little bit, this idea of know, be, and do. I asked you, are you fulfilling this role? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? And if you're not, I just want to maybe explain and expand on a little bit how disastrous this is to our soul. If our purpose, and you've heard this, I think Jerry might have said it, but is to prepare your soul for an eternity with God. It's disastrous if you're not investing in no be and do. So Genesis 2-7 says that God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. From this verse, I understand that we are bipartite individuals, meaning we have two parts. So we are physical and we are spiritual. Now, most of the world understands the physical aspect of our being, and they invest enormously in the physical aspect of our being. Much less of the world understands the spiritual aspect of our being. And I would say even less of the world invests properly in the spiritual aspect of our being. And just as our physical body needs to be fed, so our spiritual body or our soul needs to be fed. And Jesus says it's fed in two ways. Jesus, out in the wilderness, interacting with Satan, the first temptation, where he's fasted for 40 days. One of my favorite verses, you know, he's fasted for 40 days and it says, the Bible says, and afterwards he was hungry. (laughs) (laughs) yes he was hungry but 4-4 when Jesus is interacting with Satan he says man does not live 
by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, that's one way that the soul is fed, by the word of God. You've heard the verse already this afternoon, John 4.34, that Jesus is saying, my will is to do, or my food is to do the will of the Father and to finish his works. So the second aspect of the feeding of our soul is doing God's will or his works. So those two things. And if you think about it, that is no be do, right? Knowing and being transformed by God's word and then doing his will, doing his works, those two things. So if we're not investing in those two things, we're starving our soul. We're not growing the way we should as men. And so thus, you see, 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul is exhorting Timothy to let no one despise his youth. And I don't know how old Timothy was, but Paul seems to be saying, even though you look young, don't be spiritually young. And that's one of my prayers, that my spiritual age would outpace my physical age. And I think it should be all of our prayers, but we have to invest in the word, in the works of God. And let me, let me even boil it down more and pinpoint, not, I mean, we're awful at both of those, aren't we? We're terrible at being obedient to God and we're terrible at knowing his word. It seems to me, though, if between the two, if you had to make a bet, I think there are a lot more people who want to do the works of God than invest in the word of God. And this struck me as I was thinking about kind of an example from high school that as an athlete, and so I hung out with a lot of other athletes, and they loved to go into the weight room. And when I went into the weight room, you know, we kind of did head-to-toe type stuff. But when they went into the weight room, all they did was upper body stuff. So they would just be in front of the mirror, you know, doing curls and, um, you know, bench press and, you know, high-fiving each other. And, and um, I got around to asking one of them one time. I'm like, why don't you guys work out your legs at all? I mean, come on, what are you doing? And he's like, well, nobody sees the legs. You only see the upper body. And so it is, I think, with the difference between the Word of God and the works of God that the works of God, when you're doing them, it brings you glory. It brings you praise in the sight of man. Don't get caught in that trap. You've got to know the will of God before you can do the works of God. And I put these two little triangles on the chart because I think that's what most of us are. We're upside-down triangles. We've invested very little in the Word of God but we've invested very much and very loudly in making sure everyone knows that we do the works of God or that we're Christians. So are these upside-down triangles that have no stability at all and just fall over with the gentlest breeze when I think we're supposed to be exactly the opposite and be able to endure whatever kind of torrential rain or storm or flood comes our way. I think it's helpful when we're trying to understand how to do this 
to look around into the past. Because I don't know about you guys, there aren't a ton of great examples that I could look around to in today's day and age. We have more access to the word and to truth than we've ever had before, but yet we're the most shallow in that understanding of the word or of God's ways. And so let me share with you a few examples of other people. And Hebrews 12.1 says, you know, talks to us about looking at the cloud of witnesses around us. And I think that's referring to Hebrews 11, but there is a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and have run this race and have run it well that we can look upon. Let me read a few. George Whitfield said, Whole days and weeks have I spent prostrate, prostrate on the ground in silent or vocal prayer. Have you guys done that? E.M. Bounds writes a lot on prayer. The men who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. He who fritters away the early morning in its opportunity and freshness in other pursuits than seeking God will make poor headway seeking him the rest of the day. If God is not first in our thoughts and efforts in the morning, he will be in the last place the remainder of the day. How about Martin Luther? This is... This is during his first year in monastery he wrote this. And this is just a description. So during their first year in the monastery, novices were given a Bible bound in red leather and encouraged to study it. Years later, in one of his table talks, Luther claimed that he had read the Bible so thoroughly that he knew what was on every page. When a passage was mentioned, he knew immediately where to find it. And then it goes on to say, and this is Luther speaking, at that time, no other study pleased me so much as sacred literature. With great loathing, I read physics. Aristotle, we talked about him. And my heart was aglow when the time came to return to the Bible. I read the Bible diligently. Sometimes one statement occupied all my thoughts for a whole day. Do those words describe you? Do they describe me? I think those are questions that we should ask ourselves. Luther goes on, and this is a great, great passage. He goes on and he relates the struggles of his day. And I think they're similar to the struggles of our day. He struggled with the spiritual laziness of his generation as well. Luther was constantly vexed that his fellow Germans were so bored with the Bible. And this is him speaking. The neglect of scripture, even by spiritual leaders, is one of the greatest evils in the world. Everything else, arts or literature, is pursued and practiced day and night. And there is no end of labor and effort. But holy scripture is neglected as though there was no need of it. Does that sound like our time and our age right now and let's be let's put a mirror in front of ourselves does that sound like us in some sense I don't care about the culture or what the church the body is doing but what how are we doing with that let us ask ourselves that question are we so entrenched in the arts or literature or the pursuits and the practices 
of labor in our efforts day and night that we just neglect the Holy Scripture totally. I think Andy might have put Hosea 4.6 up, uh, up on the board, and I've included it in your notes. This verse, so Hosea is a, is a minor prophet, and it's written to the northern kingdom of Israel. And it is a, it's a condemning book on them in their obedience. And it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now, I have no way of knowing if this is a verse that applies to you and me. It certainly applied to the northern kingdom of of Israel. But I do know that it demonstrates the character of God. And he says that his people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And he says they lack knowledge for two reasons. One... They've rejected it. And number two, they've forgotten it. The Proverbs are ripe with phrases and truth that says the knowledge of God is available. It says over and over again that wisdom cries out, cries out from the highest places of the city. And it calls for everyone who will come to it that pass by. The knowledge of God is available to us. If we don't have it, it's because we've either rejected it or we've forgotten it. And this was hard for me to get my arms around, but both of those things, God implies that they're willful. Rejecting, I can understand that, being a willful activity. But even forgetting it, he places punishment on forgetting it. So that puts it into the willful category. So if you don't have it, it's not because it's not available, but you don't have it because you don't want it. And it's almost like you're running this race, this marathon, and you're fasting. If you're doing that. And it is a race for our life. And we need that nourishment and that sustenance. And again, I think it begins with the word of God. But it includes also the works of God. So being a man of God, that vertical aspect, I believe, has everything to do with the no, be, and do. It has everything to do with feeding your soul with the word of God in the works of God. And we need to be men that will give our lives to those things. So let me come up for air and see if anybody has any questions or comments. Let's talk about the horizontal aspect. As Andy mentioned before, E squared, that horizontal aspect of our calling, of being a man of God. 
How many people, I don't know if I should do this, but what the heck. How many people have shared the gospel with somebody in the last day? One. How about in the last week? How about in the last couple weeks? Don't answer, don't raise your hand to this one. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone? Have you ever been in a discipleship relationship with someone? If you haven't, or it's been a long time, that to me seems like fairly convicting things. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about evangelism and edification. So giving away what God has given you. He doesn't just give it to you for you, but he gives it to you for you and to give away to other people. Andy read this verse, and I'm going to read it as well. The Great Commission. Because I think it's important what we're commissioned to. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the commission, right, is to make disciples. That's the horizontal aspect. And he says you make disciples in two ways. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all things that Jesus has taught you. Baptizing has to do with evangelism. Teaching has to do with edification. Edification. Let me back up. Evangelism, it really is a word that just, it's almost, it's a verb that means good news. It's like sharing the good news. That's all it is. Gospel and evangelism, those words are almost identical. Edification just means to build up. Build up. And so, if someone is not a believer, you're seeking to share the good news with them. If they are a believer, you're seeking to build them up. And it's already been mentioned once today or a couple times that biblically, those are the two main reasons to have a relationship with anyone. Luke 9.25 says, What does it profit if a man gains the whole world but is himself lost or destroyed? So you profit another person nothing unless you invest in their soul. Unless you're investing either in evangelism and or edification. You're of no profit. That relationship is vain. Luke 9.25 And we have a lot of relationships in our lives, right? But I want to hunker down and we really have two main categories. We have the relationships at home and we have the relationships abroad, out in the world. And as someone already noted, that if you're not doing it at home, the Bible would seem to imply that you shouldn't be doing it out in the world. I don't know about you guys, but I see a lot of people 
that are very vibrant and out there actively in the world doing it, but their families are a mess. There are pastors who aren't the husbands of one wife, but they're the husbands of two or three wives. There are full-time missionary workers that are on their second marriage, etc., etc. But the call to us is to be doing it well in our home and to be doing it well abroad or outside the home. We've got to be doing both. And to be a man, I think, means to do both. And if um, 1 Timothy 3 talks about the qualifications of a bishop and elder, and in there it talks about that you shouldn't be a bishop or elder unless first you're the husband of one wife and your children are basically under control. And so that's where I get the idea that you've got to be doing it well at home before you can be doing it outside the home. So, I've kind of broken these, these uh, relationships down, right, between home and abroad. But I want to think about what is our objective in these relationships, and then what kind of tools do we have at our disposal to use in order to accomplish these objectives. Does that make sense? So kind of like, if you're a builder, your objective is to build this house. And then you have to know what kind of tools are necessary to build that house and make sure they're available to you. So, we are called to build a house with our wife and our kids and our colleagues, and there are certain tools. So, what does it look like to build? And I think if you look at Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it gives... Paul gives a really good description of what it looks like to build. He says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we might present every man perfect in Christ. That's our goal. That's our goal with every... That's the end point with every relationship that we want to take part in that process of God making that person perfect. Complete is the word is what it means. We want them to grow to maturity in Christ, to be the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4:11 through 16 talks about how the body interacts together for the sake of building one another up into the fullness of Christ. That's our goal, that's our mission, whether it is our family or whether it's outside of our family. That's our goal. E squared is a part of that. I would say we have four tools that we can do it in every relationship. And I call this pest, but prayer, our example, service, and truth. Those four things. Prayer, our example, service, and truth. <clears throat> There's this, there's this guy that uh, he's, I don't know if he is the pastor in the city of Colossae, but uh, it's Colossians 4.12, I think is the reference. And uh, he is this guy, Epaphras is his name, and it just seems like he's on his knees daily for his church, praying that they would come 
to the fullness of Christ. That's what I mean by that's one of our tools, praying, interceding at the throne for those around us. Our example, Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what I mean by your example. Is Christ shining through there, through you? People don't want to see you. They want to see Christ. Or let me back up. People don't need to see you, but they need to see Christ. Service. In the verses right before the ones that Jerry talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, Paul talks about how he's a chameleon to people. He says, I'm all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Though I'm free from all men, I've become a servant to all. So again, your service of other people is a tool that you have in your arsenal of E squared or trying to bring them to completion. And then lastly, truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it seems like they play a little bit on each other. You know, sometimes you don't even have an opportunity with someone to serve them or to speak truth into their life just because the relationship is kind of tenuous. So all you can do is just pray your guts out and be an example to them. But it seems like as you pray, God just miraculously brings opportunities for you to serve or to plant seeds of truth in their life. And ultimately, that's what you're hoping to do is share truth in their life that they could be built up. Let me, before I get into family and and uh, wives and children, any questions so far? Right, if we expand a little more on the truth part of it, I guess maybe. Yeah. Well, if all of us are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that idea, the slide up here of revelation, that's how all of us are transformed. Changing our, all of us have a truth system, and we're trying to help ourselves and others understand the true truth system, which is the Word of God. So, that's what I mean by that. Whether it's teaching, whether it's sharing biblical truth, whether it's sharing the gospel, whatever it might be. Any other questions? So, let's look at it. Let's look at uh, three of those relationships that most of us have in common. So, our wives. Ephesians five twenty five through twenty nine. We all know the verse, and it says that we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church, and He gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that He might present her to Himself. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So what is our objective? What's our responsibility before God with our wives? This verse says that our responsibility is the same as Christ's responsibility towards the church. That we're supposed to wash her with the word that 
we might present her to Jesus, glorious, spotless, sanctified, without blemish. Does that scare you guys? That you're gonna that you literally I don't know what it's gonna look like, but God expects you to present your wife to Jesus holy, spotless, blameless, sanctified on that day. How are you guys doing with that? Yeah, cool. Um, that doesn't really make sense to me. It doesn't. Well, so like in John 15, mm-hmm. 3, he says, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, which yeah. is a lot like uh, in Ephesians. Yeah. What, does that mean reading the Bible to our wife? Well, is that what that means? I'll give you one application in a second. But, in a sense, so that word sanctification, it seems like it's used in a couple different ways in the Bible. In one sense, it's used synonymously with justified. So you have been made clean. But we are also being made clean, right? God declared us pure and holy, but we're being made pure and holy, right? And so, we all, when you accept Jesus, we are justified. But there is a process as well that goes on after that of being sanctified. And that's what I'm talking about. And I would say to you that this is an impossible task. I can't do it. But he speaks of the tool that I'm supposed to use that can do it. He speaks of the word of God. Wash her with the water of the word. And this this for some reason has has been on my mind a lot lately. How many of you guys in this room teach your wives the word of God? It seems to me our wives are supposed to get fed from three sources that I can find. One is they're supposed to be self-feeders like all of us, right? Number two, Titus talks about older women teaching younger women. And then number three, their husbands. Why are we such wusses about feeding our wives? That, there are a lot of tools that we should employ with our wives, but that's the one that I want to hunker down on right now. Do you make it a regular practice to wash your wife with the word? I don't know what that looks like or should look like exactly in your family, but a lot of us won't even go there with our wives. Let me throw out there that it has two enormous benefits besides what we've already talked about. Besides what we've already talked about. One, the man learns to be a leader. The man grows in authority over the wife as he teaches the word to his wife. And along with that, the woman learns 
to be teachable and to be submissive in the relationship as she sits under her husband. So that's the first enormous reason that I think we should be doing it. And number two, this verse I think was up here again earlier, but Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 talks about how the word of God should be in your heart and you shall teach it diligently to your children. Well, we all know when we teach, we're the primary beneficiaries of that teaching. So do you want to grow and become a man of God? Well, study the word and give it away. And if you do that with your wife, you will grow. Believe me, you'll grow. You'll have to learn how to teach and ask questions with her. But isn't it frustrating? Like, I don't know, does that, does it make you nervous teaching your wives the word of God? Like, what if, I'm not saying that this is the way you need to do it, but most of us were in Bible studies with other men, right? What if you, every week, had a Bible study with your wife? And again, I I put on there the caveat that I'm not saying this is the way that you have to do it. There's a lot of different ways to slay that dragon. But, wife, I want to have a Bible study on 1 Corinthians, and I want to meet every week, and I want to lead the Bible study, and I want to teach you. How would that go over, first of all, with your wives? And number two, how would it actually play out? Would there be a lot of kickback, butting of heads? If that makes you a little nervous, or you squirm a little bit in your chair, it's a consequence of what Jerry was up here talking about. That's why it's broken. But that doesn't mean that we continue to function within the broken system. But we got to raise up and be men over our wives. And I think that means we have to be men who serve them in the Word. Who know the Word and serve them. Second relationship at home, our children. I'm, I'm really just trying to point out one thing that you guys, that all of us can take with us out of here in regards to these relationships. The one thing with our relationship with our wife, teach her the word. If she's ahead of you, you got your work cut out for you. But teach your wife the word. With your children, I wrote down some verses, Ephesians 6.4, Colossians 3.21, Proverbs 22.6, train up your child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Again, the same objective, train up our children, right, to be disciples of Christ. Same objective, try and train them up and to be mature individuals. <clears throat> the one tool that I would throw out there for your consideration among the host of things that we should be doing with our children is if you're supposed to train up someone, 
you got to be, there are a lot of football dads in here, you got to be a head coach, right? you got to be the head coach. The buck stops with you. The responsibility is squarely on your shoulders to train up your children. Now, that does not mean that you have to do every aspect of their rearing. But you're going to be held responsible for those aspects. So be the head coach. And, I mean, I <clears throat> again, I, I swam growing up, and my head coach for swimming... He didn't do everything. We had a weightlifting coach. We had, you know, you could get a nutritionist that would help you with those type of things. Sometimes we had different coaches that would help us on different aspects of swimming or different strokes. So there's a lot of people that play into training up that athlete or that child, a whole host of different influences. But the head coach is ultimately responsible for that training and that plan. Have you thought about a plan? And I'm, just, I'm standing up here being one of you guys. And my oldest, she's eight. And so I haven't had to run the distance with her yet. But do you have a plan for your kids? It's funny. I think most people abdicate the role of the head coach. Most parents now, I don't know if this is you, but what pops into your mind when I say the children's ministry? Coloring. If, if the first thing that pops into your mind is what happens on Sunday at church, you've been taken captive by this culture. The children's ministry is not something... That necessarily happens at church. It's what you do in the home. It's what you're doing every day with your children, the children's ministry. Ministry just means service. So your service to your children is your plan, your training of them. Don't abdicate that role. I was in my office probably the first year I was practicing here. And a parent came in and the child... I think the child was three and a half years old. And in this mom, she was complaining left and right about everything. And finally, she voiced um, one of her biggest complaints. She's like, you know, and she wasn't complaining about me, but she's like, my child isn't even potty trained yet. And she's like, that's why I send them to daycare. They're supposed to potty train them. What do they do there? And when I heard that, I just wanted... I really wanted to kick her out, but obviously I couldn't do that. But I think we are all taken captive by that mentality that it's someone else's job to raise up our kids. They're not going to do as good of a job as you want them to do. So be the head coach of your kids. I labeled this last aspect as being a man of the fellowship. And this is just being a man in fellowship with other people that you run across out in the world. So as you're traveling along the path, we all are going to bump up against different people, right? And again, our purpose with those people, if we have the opportunity, is to evangelize and edify them, to build them 
into the fullness of Christ, to do our little part along the journey, right? The one tool that I would um, throw out there for you, if you're not actively in a relationship seeking to evangelize and edify another man, I would recommend that you pray to God and you ask him for one man. One man to disciple. It will help you grow immensely. Keep asking until he gives you one. So I've talked about... um, I've tried to package all this stuff together as best as I can, as best as I understand it. And I don't know if this is convicting at all to you. It is to me as I think about it. And let me just give you some, some maybe some further action items. What can you be doing? What can you do today? What can you do as you walk out of here? And, I know I've, I've told you already some things that you can be doing, but maybe just big picture. What can you do after this conference? Number one, look in the mirror. That's what I mean by review. Lord, search me. Know my heart. Know my anxiety. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Jeremiah 10, 23 and 24 says, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And the author cries out, O Lord, correct me, but in your mercy, not in your wrath, lest you bring me to nothing. That's what we want. God, we're all broken. We're all failures. But we need to be looking in that mirror on a regular basis and confessing that. And that leads to the second one, repenting. There is a point where I taught my kids what the word repent means. All it means is to turn. And uh, so I would have them run across the room and I would say, repent. And they would stop the direction that they they were going. They would turn around and they would run back to their father. That's what we got to do. If you're feeling God moving in your heart and you're feeling convicted and broken, stop the direction you're going. Turn and run back to your Father. Proverbs 123 says, Turn at my rebuke and I will pour my spirit out on you. I will make my words known to you. So turn. Turn at his rebuke. What was that? Proverbs 123. Number three, request. Ask of God. God wants to give you the wealth of the kingdom. He wants to give you these things. He wants you to be a godly man, a godly husband, a godly father, a godly friend. He wants this for you. But you've got to ask him for it. Ask and don't stop asking for him to make you into the man that he wants you to be. 
And then number four, renew your mind and run the race. That's the no be do in the E squared. And I think we can learn from both Jonah and Paul. In Jonah 2.9, Jonah sitting in the belly of the whale. And we all know that he had gone the wrong direction. And God had created a huge storm, gotten him thrown overboard and eaten by a big fish. He's sitting and he's repenting in the belly of the whale. And he says, but I will sacrifice to the Lord with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. If you're sitting in this room and you've asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life in the past, you've made a vow to him that his, that your life is his. Pay that vow. Pay it. Paul, in the book of Philippians, when he's in prison, he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us be men that do that. So that's all I got. Any other questions I can answer? Comment? Yeah. Yeah, I would just ask, uh, can you give me an example of what the what it looks like when you're sharing the gospel? Um, just because uh, I've tried it where I, I just shared and it seems like sometimes it's just bombs and then, and then you get the other side where it's, well, it's investing in people and then you get the opportunity to share. So I'm kind of looking at both of those sides. I'm wondering which one... Yeah. So Daniel 4.35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, for God does according to his will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. Who can say to him, what have you done? God doesn't need us one bit to accomplish his will but he lets us take part in it. So I would be less worried about the results than your willingness to take part in this plan. Excellent, thank you. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. I guess a father with young kids, I mean, what, what do you do with your children as you know, specific examples to be that leader and to show the word of God? Mm-hmm. I think there are 101 ways to do this. Some, maybe some phrases that have been passed down to me. Don't ever bore your children with the gospel. I think that's exceedingly important. Um, personally, what I've done is kids love to read. And there are a ton of books. There are these books called Arch Books that were given to me by someone else. But it's probably about 100 short little books that uh, they each contain a story of the Bible. And um, so we go through those. I mean, we've read those for, I don't know how many years, six years. Mm-hmm. And 
This is a great example. I don't think it's ever too early to start. So my daughter, she was she was two. We dropped my wife off at the airport, my oldest daughter, and we were we were driving back from the airport. She's like, "Where's mommy?" And I'm like, "Oh, we dropped her. You know, she's she's getting on a plane." And she asked something like, "Well, who's driving the plane?" I'm like, "The pilot." And she goes, "Pontius Pilot." <laughs> it is getting in. So, so they understand and they absorb this stuff from a very early age. And so I would encourage you to give it to them at an early age. Not necessarily to force it on them, but um, I mean, I started out with two girls, and this is just my personal example, but I didn't have to force it on them. You guys want to read a book together? Yeah, let's read. As they've gotten older, I pay them. I, I, uh, I told my six-year-old if she, it's 600 pages of picture Bible. If you finish that, I'll give you $100. My eight-year-old's been through it many times already. So, I mean, I think you're just always trying to be creative and encourage them in the world. And, and maybe this is just a, an example, but I see people walking around, coming into my office, and I'll see the dad with, let's say, Chicago Bears jersey. And then I see the child with a Chicago Bears jersey or hat. And it strikes me that the tendency is what the parents love and covet and spend a lot of time doing, the kids tend to love and covet and want to spend a lot of time doing. So um, where do kids get a love for pro sports? Probably from their parents. So just some examples. But I mean, I'm happy to talk to you. Later, too, if you want to talk more. <clears throat> and, I mean, no matter what, Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So, nothing that we're doing is a silver bullet to bring our kids up and make them into disciples. But we will stand accountable for how well we've done as the head coach and how well we've done training them up. Uh, just something to take, take note of. So prayer seems to me to be huge in that, that, uh, that process. Anything else? Thank you guys very much.